Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. We're piecing it all together in these uncertain times. Yes. Randy, there Have is... Have you ever been certain, Bo? Uh, more, cer- more certain than this. Uh, I think it's been more certain for white folks. Yeah. There's this... Uh, Grand stabilizing factor that has helped people to sort of be at ease with all the things going on because life has been okay for them. Yes. You know, there's a theory of history and change that's based on earthquakes that I really like. It has a big fancy name. It's called a punctuated equilibrium, but it basically says like tectonic plates that hold the tension. And, and for a long time, it looks like everything is stable until the plates can no longer hold the tension and then they shift. And that's when the violence of the earthquake happens. Mm. But it's uh, that theory of change, societal change in history is one of my favorite analogies, word pictures about how change happens is it holds, it holds, it holds until it can no longer contain the pressure and then it has to blow off some steam and that's where the violence comes yeah i i like that i also like what malcolm x said what's that the chickens have come home to roost Mm. somehow i knew you were going to say that line today i remember (laughs) (laughs) you and i have been in conversation for 12 years now and um, that line, the chickens will come home to roost. Uh, unfortunately, as I've been watching the news and what the social unrest uh, and the racial disparity in our country, that line has been playing in the back of my mind. Yeah. Well, I think we're at a, a very interesting time in our history. And, uh, you know, we're... We need to talk about it. There's a lot, yep. lots going on, and I'm hoping that we can get some great conversations about all this today and mm. help people think of maybe some perspectives that they hadn't thought of. And then uh, they might be able to help us uh, think of things that we haven't thought of as well. That's why we're in conversation together. Yes. I, you know, I love our tagline, a journeying space, and I know that we are on a journey together, and I just love that we have uh, seen a little community Uh, spring up around these conversations. So listeners, if you want to post on Facebook or comment on the website or respond in the show notes, if you post in any of those places, you can also email us connect at piecingitalltogether.com. We love and need your contributions. Um, We're very, um, we're loving Uh, the feedback that we're getting. And we really appreciate the time that you take to listen to the podcast and to respond to some of the things that we talk about. So especially in this moment in time and with this uh, episode, we're really going to be looking for feedback from you. Yeah. So we're talking about white supremacy today, correct? We are talking about white supremacy, which is one. What's that? Big concept. It is a big concept. It's one little corner of a much bigger conversation about race. And so there are so many layered uh, elements when it comes to talking about race. And white supremacy is just one part of that. And so, um, but right now, many people uh, 
are waking up, some of them for sort of the first time, to issues related to race and specifically whiteness. And so I have really tried uh, to position myself in the conversation to, um, let me tell you what I'm trying to do. My hope is to circle back for people who are waking up sort of delayed in this conversation and who are only newly made aware or awakened to the depth of the problem that we have in this country and um, sort of don't know where to start. So one of the things that I have noticed is that for those who have been asleep or in a slumber to the depth of these problems and issues, they sort of missed their opportunity in many ways to have this conversation in a safe space before it was urgent and intense. And they've woken up to a house fire and all of a sudden it's time for action. And their um, the pan, the level of panic that I am sensing in many people, the, the white anxiety of trying to get up to speed from zero to 60 um, they feel like the train left the station and they didn't have a ticket and now they're screwed. They want to be good white allies. They just don't know where to start. Yeah. So the, yeah, I, I like the analogy of the house is on fire. They, um, there are people who are jumping in and protesting, which is great. You know, there's a yeah. lot of uh, what's a little bit different about this right now is that there's a, a lot of white folks, a lot of white allies out there marching. In fact, a lot of them sustaining this movement, which is really, really good. But then there's also the reactionary, like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, they're all of a sudden, you know, playing into this whole theme of, um, you know, it's a, a, a zero sum game. If they're, if, if they, other people win, then I lose. Right. So. Um, yeah. That zero sum game is a powerful a mentality that says, if you go one up, that means I lose something. So right. for you to have a voice or a seat at the table means that you get a point, but I lose a point instead of understanding that we're all in this together and that racism impacts me as a white person negatively and that white supremacy even though on one level I benefit from it, ultimately makes me a captive and a prisoner to an unjust system that that I myself am am hurt by. And so one of the things I thought we could uh, start by talking about is just the word racist. So, I've noticed something really weird in the last 10 years as I've sort of entered into this conversation, which is that for many white people, one of the very worst things you can be called is a racist. So many white people will start the conversation by saying, I'm not racist. All I'm saying is X, (laughs) right? So I have two things I wanted to run by you. I don't think I've ever told you this before. I actually think that we should keep racist as a very bad thing and that it's a good thing that white people don't want to be racist. So 
in our sort of woke culture, when somebody says, I'm not racist, that usually draws cynicism or jeers or a cringe. Uh, it's a bad way to start a sentence. And, mm-hmm. but, but I actually think there's an opportunity to say to people who say, insist, I'm not racist. Good. Great job. Fantastic first start not being racist. Now, step two is to get busy on the work of being anti-racist. It's not enough to be not racist because that's nothing at all. That's just the absence of something. But to be anti-racist is to confront both in yourself and in your circles of influence the elements of the racist system and to be about that work. It's not enough to be neutral is what I would say. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not there. Yeah, I know Uh, where I'm at is like, we all start by saying we are all part of a racist system. Yeah. That privileges some over others. Yeah. Now, where are you on the privilege line? Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and, of course, the country having been founded and set up uh, from the very beginning, before it was even a country, but uh, uh, as from the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny and American exceptionalism and all the rest, being set up for white males. So, so then we have to look and say it was set up on this hierarchy uh, for white males and everyone else to have less privilege. And historically, we all have different kinds of less privilege. Well, I have privilege of somewhere along the line. You know, I have privilege with my education and others, my skin color, things like that. But, um, but, it, but the historic fact to me is to begin and say, we're all part of a racist system. Now, and then the next thing I'd like to hear from people is like, I try not to be prejudiced I try to empower others. Now, now, maybe they don't understand like what that means. But the first thing is to accept that we are all part of a racist system. Yes. Yeah. And, and I and know. Still neg- we're still viewing racism as something very negative, right? Yes, that that's true. And I know that sometimes um, that it can look like I am catering to those who are privileged enough that they have been able to pretend or ignore the racism that is, we say, baked in the bread, part of the DNA of this country, and that continues to perpetuate the injustice and the disparity that we see today. And I'm not trying to cater to people's white fragility, as it gets called, but I actually think that when you, uh, if you don't this is going to sound so stupid. If you don't agree or applaud when people say I'm not racist, as you know better than I do, for a lot of white people, their defenses go up, they get their hackles up, they want to withdraw from the table, they don't feel like it's a safe space. And so just to create an environment that says, no, no, we're all caught up in a racist system. And, and the racism is a bad thing. Like, it's like taking the Lord's name in vain. I like that people take the Lord's name in vain because it says that that somehow in our consciousness still carries weight. Like no one curses Thor, right? Because that's irrelevant. <laughs> that's irrelevant now. But the fact that people take the Lord's name in vain and it's still a little bit transgressive, for me, racism 
that should still be a very bad word. So that's just sort of my starting point. I developed this thing um, to help white people sort of figure out where they are on the whiteness spectrum. And it seems to be helping people a little bit. So I wanted to run it by you. So I have um, on my one to 10 spectrum. So level one is, it's racist. It's called white normative. That's a, a fancy way of saying that you think white is normal and everything else is a deviation. And so somebody who is at level one would say things like pull up your pants or speak English here in America, or don't give your kids weird names. That's sort of level one. And I don't know that I can help people at level one. If they're, if they're bought into that level of white normativity, that's a pretty, for me, that's a pretty impenetrable place to be. And it's like uh, uh, being in a shell. I got to coax them out somehow, but I can't help them in that white normativity. Um, and I'm sure there are people who can and that there are good resources for that. I just know that that's not my strength. Now, then they go all the way up to level 10, which I call woke AF. People who are way, way advanced, they say all the right things and they police other people's vocabulary and uh, will correct them at, at every level. And that's fine. And those people are, are advanced enough that they know the work that needs to be done. So they're fine. Here's the people I'm concerned with. Level two is I'm not racist, but I can be snarky and defensive. So they'll say things like, well, why do they get to say the N-word and we can't? So that's just level two. Level mm -hmm. three is I want to say Black Lives Matter, but don't all lives include black ones? <laughs> level four is I get that people are upset, but... And that but can be anything at all. They shouldn't damage property. We still need the police, whatever it is. I get that people are upset, but level five is the colorblind. That's the medium on the spectrum, which is, can't we all just get along? I don't even see color, right? And we've had a black president. So for me, that's the threshold where people roll over from level one to five, sort of in that white normal area. And then once they cross over into level six, which is, there's really a problem in here, isn't there? Once they cross over into level six on the other side of the watershed, then we can start having some bigger conversations and doing anti-racist work. Right. So that's my wow. hope is to, is to pull people from level one to five on, on the right side of my spectrum and to get them to roll over the threshold or the watershed so that we can start doing anti-racist work, level six, seven, eight. Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> also, very, uh, you know, a lot of classifications there. And that's, this is the part of the Western worldview that's wonderful because you can break things down, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's great. Have you written this down? Yeah, I, wrote, I did. I wrote it down. And, you know, Randy, I've been getting emails from people who are saying, and even some of my former students and former congregation members and family and friends who are saying, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm at level three or four. I want to be at six. I just, I'm being honest with you. I'm at level three or four. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah. so that's a good starting point. Yeah. So I know you know um, uh, Dr. King's uh, uh, letter from Birmingham Jail. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, he, he blames the what we call what he called white moderates at that time uh, for really much of the problem. Um, their inability to sort of accept and move with the movement, right? To, yeah. Um, and, and sacrifice as a result. So um, how is this taking that into account? So, yeah, when he says, you know, it's not, in, in the end, it's not the criticism of your enemies. It's the silence of your, of your friends, your white friends. So part of the work that needs to be done right now is white people who are newly woken up or curious. We need to be really careful that we don't, it's not people of color's job to educate us as white people, just because we're newly awakened to the problem. We can't increase the burden of the emotional labor on people of color. So part of our job as white people is to what help. What number is that on the scale, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I, I put myself at an eight. Uh, I, okay. <laughs> so, and for me, that is helping other white people get educated about the anti-racist work that needs to be done. So that, here's my hope that we can create more white allies for the work that's going to be needed down the road. Not in this moment of emergency, this exceptional moment, because um, crisis is rarely the time to do education necessarily. So to make white allies and to create more people who are committed to the work so that Going forward, we have more white allies who can help in the road ahead. Because this, what this cannot be is, is the white savior complex, right? This can't be white people fixing this. This is going to be done in relationship and in partnership, cooperation and collaboration. This is going to be a communal effort going forward. Otherwise, we're going to recreate the very structures and reinforce the very mentalities that got us into this problem. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a question All right. uh, about this number eight thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> because I, I understand this from several perspectives. One is what you stated. It's not up to people of color to have to educate white people and, and to put the emotional investment on them. And, and there's lots of people of color who say, I'm tired. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of saying this, you know, um, and, and why do they expect me to do it? And, and often it's like, why do they expect me to do it free of charge? Uh, yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's like their resp responsibility of people of color to educate on the other side. It's like, um, well, isn't that still sort of taking control and saying like, well, we're going to control how we do this without the input of people of color so that we don't offend them so much and put the emotional burden on them. 
Yeah. And here's my concern. Yeah. Um, because it still ends up being the white savior. Um, my concern is that if, if um, uh, people of color are not a part of that process, then how do you know you're actually doing the right thing? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and what I think is wrong, we need to insert this whole white fragility thing in here. And thanks to Robin D'Angelo, who has all yeah. this broken down on slide presentations. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, it, this fragility thing, it's like the worst thing that white people think they can do is make a, a racist mistake in front of a person of color. Mm. Somebody who's trying to um, become an ally and to be woke. And, and I have real concerns about that. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a story if I can. So uh, I used to visit when I was a um, coordinator of the Oklahoma Indian American Baptist churches in um, way back in the eighties uh, and early nineties in Oklahoma used to visit an old Baptist preacher. Um, he was a Comanche and uh, he was 90, you know, he's yeah, 91 years old at the time, still preaching, still driving his car to the basketball games on Friday nights, you know, the high school basketball games um, could see out of one eye. But I'd go visit him because, you know, out of just like checking on the different churches, but also I knew that, you know, this guy had wisdom. He was given his name at the, uh, uh, residential Indian boarding school uh, oh. where he had to choose his name. And he told me that story and, and how he ended up going to that school and all these kinds of things. But one, one time he said to me, cause I'd go visit him probably once a month or so. And uh, he said, Randy, do you know why, um, you know, like at a powwow when, it, when a Indian person gets a gift, like, which is a common thing at a powwow and what we call a giveaway um, the Indian person would just go up, look the person in the eye and shake their hand and say, thank you. But you ever notice how white people just like, you know, grovel. They're like, oh, thank you so much. So, oh, this is so wonderful. Oh, this is such a great gift. And it may just be a little thing, right? Yeah. And he goes, do you know why white people do that? And I'm, I'm thinking to myself after, you know, who's this 91-year-old man who's lived through everything. I mean, uh, his parents were born in teepees. And he was given his name at residential boarding school. You know, it went, you know, basically from uh, being an, an Indian on the plains to, uh, quote unquote, the educated, civilized guy. And so I figured he had a lot to say. And, and he said, you know why white people act like that? And I said, you know, no, I don't I don't know why. I've noticed it, but I don't know why. And he said, because a white person doesn't want to want to owe an Indian anything. And so they have to overcompensate and just say, oh, thank you, thank you so much. This is so great. And so the, they don't feel like they're in debt to a Native person, right? Yeah. And, and I'm wondering um, if it actually isn't better uh, to say racist, stupid things and be corrected by Native people. Mm. Because to me, there's, a, 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 there's something that happens in that tra there's a transference of power that occurs. One if you're a white person and you're being corrected by a person of color for a stupid racist thing, you might've said all of a sudden now who's got the authority mm. who has the power. Yeah. You are submitting yourself to a, a power, uh, an authority um, that is able to correct you, mm. which 
which is the reverse of the situation that had happened before. The situation before was, I'm a white person. I have authority over you just by being white. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something that happens in that transference of power. That, and, and it also happens the other way, conversely. It happens to empower the Native person to say, uh, you know, oh, all of a sudden I am empowered, and now what am I going to do with that? Mm-hmm. So um, so I'm, I don't want white people deciding uh, how not to be racist without indigenous and other black folks and other people's input. Um, so, so that's where I'm at with number eight. I get it. I valid, valid critique. But there is a, a, it's great to be concerned about that. Um, because you know, people are tired, you know, but the, the sad, the sad, sad, um, and unfortunate truth is, that as people of color, and I know this uh, as an indigenous person, I've seen over and over and over and over again, if folks are gonna be educated, we're gonna have to do it because Mm. we are the ones who have the lived experience. Otherwise, this becomes just another theory. Like, here's what you don't wanna say around people of color, Uh, right? That's cultural training. But it's better if you have someone from that culture come in and tell you, oh, this is what you don't want to do. Mm. And this is why this is what it makes me feel like when you say that. And you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. Anyway, I'll throw that in. Yeah. Thank you. I remember a couple of years ago, I called you when I was doing my coursework and uh, I was preparing to do my qualifying exams and I was doing a, a literature review in the field of race And I found this article by a guy named Troy Duster. It was called The Morphing Properties of Whiteness. And it was in a book called The Making and Unmaking of Whiteness. And I remember calling you and I was so excited because this person had put into a story in a narrative form something that I had previously not understood, which is that... um, understandings of race and implications of race, they change on a fairly fluid basis. And that's why they can become really elusive. So he compared that to like when water's in a vapor form of gas. And then now we have these fluid definitions uh, where we're saying, well, race is really a social construct. And so there's this fluid thing. People say, oh, well, that, does that mean racism isn't real? I mean, we're all part of the human race, right? So that's a fluid. That's when it's water. But there are times where it solidifies into ice and it gets the concrete reality, right, is, is dangerous. And I was so excited about this elemental um, understanding of how race and specifically whiteness can transform itself in a moment in, in any engagement. And I called you and I, I sent you the article, I sent you the PDF and I called you to tell you how excited I was about this. And you were annoyed and you said, damn it, Bo, any person of color could have told you that. <laughs> Do you remember that? You said, no, not really, but you said, we know this we know this out of lived experience. Any person of yeah. color already knows this. And I yeah, really, that was a... I vaguely recall that. Yeah. 
like uh, someone mean me the other day and uh i was i was doing a uh thing with uh some university national leaders and somebody memed something i said i actually wish they would have memed another thing i said but they memed this and it and what it, i think i began by saying uh um someone said something and i said well uh had quoted me right and i said um something like uh um uh nothing a, a native person says really matters until a white person quotes them. Oh, oh. <laughs> wow. But um, so, so the thing is, is that there's this devaluing process, right? That has occurred. That's power. I mean, yeah. that we can just talk about generally as power. I know people don't like, some people don't like to talk about power, but, but it's the same principle. Now, my understanding of what Jesus taught uh, is all about power. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's typified, and I know I've, I've, I've mentioned this before to you, but just think about this again, this little thing that Dan Rather was interviewing Mother Teresa, and he said, Mother Teresa, you know, ask a theological question. He said, you know, why did Jesus say the poor you always have with you? And she looked at him very quizzically, and she like, well, you don't know this? And, uh, and she said, because if the poor are not here, the rich have no chance to be saved. Yeah. Yeah. And so this transference of power, mm. what it takes for white folks who have been a part of a system, they, they may not have a, a quote-unquote racist bone in their body or prejudice bone in their body. They may have been working on this all their lives and understood it and everything else. But what it means to have a person of color in authority over them and saying, you're not the expert on this. I'm the expert on this. Saves them. Mm. It heals them. Because all of a sudden they are experiencing something that says, this is what it feels like for me to not be in charge of these people. Mm. They may have just, you know, it's not something they may have ever consciously even thought. Or, or for me to be superior over these people. Mm. And all of a sudden, they have to deal with all those feelings, bruised egos, whatever else it is. And then it finally gets to the point, well, this is what people of color have been experiencing all their lives. Mm. Right? So, so now we're coming to a greater understanding. You know, it's very popular right now to produce uh, an anti-racist reading list. But a <laughs> I was just asked for one this morning. <laughs> ah! Well, I would from love another to... native person. This is from another from a native friend who who called me or texted me and said, "Hey, can you come up with a a, a native anti-racist reading list?" And I don't know who he's given this to, and I said, "Yeah, after the podcast, I'll send you some books." <laughs> I yeah, I would love to see yours because it's actually become quite a, a controversial thing which is that when woke white people produce their top 10 um, resources to look at how many of them are by white authors or thinkers and how many of them are by people of color. And so I've actually found that to be a really helpful conversation. And to go back to the, we talked about white fragility. One of the reasons, you know, that book is sold out, Randy, so many people have hurt? ordered it in the last two weeks. You can't get it. Yeah, but I'm it's teaching by, a class right now. And in, 
independent study on that's uh, called the decolonize decolonization and whiteness. And oh. uh, my student, it's just an individual. Um, it happens to be actually reading that this week, and we're going to talk about it next week. So. I don't wonder if the reason that white people find it so approachable and helpful is that it is framed in whiteness, right? right. For the author yeah. versus to read something that's written by a person of color that for many people is the sort of the next level, but that distinction in itself exposes what you're talking about. And, and, the, and, the, and the caution that we need to have that this cannot be only an in-house conversation. That might be the starting point. But ultimately, we are going to learn about race from people of color and to give them the first and last word. Now, it can be in dialogue, but for them to initiate the parameters, the, the framework of the conversation, and to give us the vocabulary, that's a really powerful thing is to, is, is to frame the conversation in ways that are not couched in whiteness. Right. So, yeah, and, and it, it, be, it can become a real comfort, too, to have white folks saying these things, right? Yeah. It's like, okay. Um, and, and there is, you know, the matter of context, but um, the whole point is to get white folks out of their comfort context and into something different. You know, comfort is one of the highest values white Americans have. Yeah. Um, so, so I was uh, at, a, at a, what we call, I forget what they call that, a senior seminar or something at, uh, at the university that I work for. And the president was up talking and, and somehow the subject of Native American genocide came up. And, uh, and then he began to talk about it. And, and, and I was in the room, of course, and he knew that. And he said, now, wouldn't you rather, and this was to over 100 seniors, wouldn't you have rather have me explaining this to you than Randy Woodley telling you all of this? Mm. In other words, you should be glad that I'm giving you comfort as I tell you this. Mm. Let you a, a person sort of an indigenous person making you uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, that, that relief valve that lets off the steam, that's one of the things that white people value the most is to be let off the hook and to not be uh, in that uncomfortable situation, but for somebody to let off the steam a little bit right? Whether it's in comforting words or in whatever it is. And you're right, that that is a real, uh, that's a problem built into conversations uh, about whiteness is that the discomfort that grows, if the pressure doesn't build, people don't, aren't propelled to change. And so this is something that white people do for other white people is let off the steam a little bit so that that pressure doesn't become uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, and, and I have a, a, a friend um, who, uh, you know, I love, he's a brother um, and uh, he is, uh, but he, but he buys into all the right wing stuff. Right. Okay. And, uh, and we tried to have a conversation about this one time in person and uh, he asked me to please stop using the word white supremacy. Yeah. 
And I, I and so I kept doing it. And, I, and then finally I said, no, I won't stop using it. And he said, well, it really makes me uncomfortable. And I said, why do you think that is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so he was still at the point where he was like, you know, I cannot buy into this if you use uh, white supremacy, um, you know, so. Because of what he do people picture like the Ku Klux Klan and then they're like, well, I'm not that. Right. But if you stop using it, they're never going to get the bigger construct. Yeah. Hey, there is one so more I use it intentionally. I use it intentionally and I usually define it and I say, and, and part of what uh, white supremacy consists of is white normalcy and white privilege. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's yeah, that's really clear. <clears throat> hey, there is one more thing I did want to run by you. One of the challenges that I am running into in these conversations is, um, you know, I, I believe in the, the perfect storm sort of a theory of, of disaster. You don't have a catastrophe unless you have three little storms that sort of merge or converge and become a big, bad, monstrous storm. Right. And I've been noticing that the three little storms that are, po- that are really, they overlap in a very um, complicated way. And, and so in, the, in my academic work, it, it, we call it, it's get, they get laminated, like three pieces of wood that get glued together and it's tough to pull them apart. So my three things are um, individualism, just the inherent um, individualism of the Western white mind to say, well, but I'm, I haven't done anything racist or I'm not racist. That individualism lets people off the hook in a right. really disastrous way to think because we think about ourselves as standalone autonomous individuals. Right. Then the second thing is this, what gets called uh, the United States of amnesia. <laughs> Gore Vidal uh, quote, but I've heard it used several times this week um, that, and you've talked about this before that, the the for white western folks that they sort of just start where they are whether it's a blank slate or right in a vacuum without any of the history that brought us to this moment and so that united states of amnesia is just a powerful um, infection that keeps us from understanding the the full weight of this moment in history. Randy, I regularly will get people who will start in their history of America. They start in 1776. Sure. Tabula rasa. Yes. It's it's where terra nullis comes from. Ah. You know, vacant land, vacant vacant lot. No one was here. It's like there can't be a more selfish sort of idea than You know, history begins where I am. Yeah. So, you know, part of the the reality that people are waking up to is, you know, 150 years before 1776, 1619 was the first slave ship. And you just think, 1619? That's a long time before 1776. And then Native folks will say, what are you guys talking about? It's not 400 years. 
It's 527 years. 1492, baby. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You, you have nursery rhymes about this. But it's that cultural amnesia that really is an infection that is quite limiting for people. So the individualism is one. The amnesia is the second. And then third is just this desire to be colorblind. Like, what? but I don't see you in that way. And when you pair these three things together, you've got a real a laminated problem where these overlapping gears actually keep uh, people from thinking outside of that white normalcy, yeah. right? And to address their white privilege. And that's how we get in the situation of, that you call white supremacy. Right. Yeah. And those are good. I'm not sure that that's the only three storms, but those are, <laughs> yeah, definitely three of the, right. three of the things that are going on. Right? No, no, we I would want to add environment, economics, politics, policing. Yeah, and the root of those things to me, of course, goes back to the, the idea of platonic dualism. Yeah. Um, that that in, in platonic dualism, you have to have one thing over the other. Yeah. So it's, and it's, it's always the, either the mind or the ideas or the spirit or the products of the mind, uh, like constitutions and scripture and things like that, take precedence over the actual physical realm, right? And so there has to be a hierarchy. And so it creates this hierarchical thinking and the hierarchical thinking says, you know, like, okay, there has to be, you know, and coupled with the individualism, the greed and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's all intertwined. Right. But yeah. it says that, that one race has to be over the others. Mm. One people have to Western white Europeans have mm. to be uh, superior to everything else because that's just how life is, right? And mm -hmm. so we see it all throughout history that, the, I mean, the people make the most outlandish statements to say that, that whites are more superior than everyone else. I mean, it's, it's quotable throughout every age of history, even mm -hmm. up to right now. And, um, and, but, but it goes back to, to me, a, a, a flawed worldview that is based on hierarchy mm -hmm. and dualism. Well, listener, we would love your feedback. You have heard an honest dialogue, and uh, we would love to invite you into the conversation. Let us know resources that you're finding helpful, questions that you have, concerns, critiques. We're open because we know that the road ahead is going to be a difficult one. And so we are not trying to soft sell uh, the conversation, but just give people some basic building blocks to, um, to build a dialogue so that we can make the changes that are needed uh, going forward. We want to thank our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your financial support. It helps us. We just had to renew our uh, licensing and our, our hosting fees. And so we are very grateful uh, for your financial support. You can go to patreon.com and find us there if you want to become a supporter. You can email us, like I said. You can comment on Facebook or on the website. There's lots of ways to jump into the conversation. So let's give them those again. Connect at piecingitalltogether.com is the email. That's our email. And uh, you can catch the podcast directly from piecingitalltogether.com. And, uh, and then there's that 
that uh, patreon.com slash piecing it all together, correct? Yes. Okay. Very good. Well, Randy, there is no one that I would rather be in conversation with than you. I do treasure your friendship and I thank you for how much anti-racist work you have done in your life and to um, for, for the way that you house these conversations and invite people into some very uncomfortable places of addressing white supremacy. Thanks, Bo. Appreciate that. And I appreciate you and the way you break this all down. And just don't fight me too much or you'll end up back and you know, I'll be criticizing you for that number eight again. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Always the danger. Always the danger. <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks, listeners. Uh, you know, we're in this thing together and we're going to get through it together and we're piecing it all together with you. Peace out.